Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Now, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, so Ravinder, Say hello to everyone, share your special inside of the day, and tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello everyone, thanks for joining us. My special insight for the day is probably that I'm perpetually uncertain these days. That's, uh, I think when you're uncertain, you have the chance to hear information afresh and then you can learn something new so that's what I try to do um, if you would like to you know if you have any questions or anything that you would like um, on the air we do have a provocative enlightenment radio page on Facebook so if you come on there you can you know put any questions that you that you have um, and also if there's any information that gets shared online any special links orals or anything like that um, I'll make sure to post it there so even after the show you can go take a look and see you know for any pertinent information like that so do come join us all right in this week's spotlight I wish to discuss the nature of indoctrination Webster defines indoctrination this way the process of teaching a person or group to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. Now, when I say indoctrination, most people will think of matters religious or political, but I want to extend the conversation to all of those issues that we have culturally inherited. Because of today's guest, let's think, for example, about your attitude toward animals. Our culture favors some animals over others. For example, dogs, cats, and horses typically escape a turn at the dinner table as the main course, while pigs, cattle, sheep, and goats fail to enjoy the same non-susceptibility. Ask yourself why. What makes these animals so different? While our culture has its favorites, other cultures favor different animals. The cow is often worshipped in India. The horse is a dinner treat in much of Europe. Dogs are a main course in China, etc. So the real question is something more specific. What makes an animal special in one culture and dinner in another? In other words, are we somehow willfully blind about the animals we choose to favor and those we choose to abuse? There are farming methods in killing markets in foreign lands that most Americans find reprehensible. Wet markets in China are just one such example. That said, when you actually see how animals are slaughtered in the States, it's hard to criticize the slaughtering in other countries. When we go to the supermarket, we buy packaged meat. It has typically been color and rich, so it's more inviting. We pick it up in a dry cellophane package, and never do we see labels on these packages showing pictures of the actual animal that died for our diet. 
Of course, if you were reminded of what you were killing to have dinner, you might hesitate about buying that cut of meat. When you suggest that vegetarianism and veganism are a healthy alternative to meat-eating, any number of people will rush in to challenge you. And when you ask them for hard data to support their claims, invariably their answer is secondhand and poorly supported. When you offer the hard data from a number of different studies, they are deaf and fall back on the need for protein. Well, protein is available from a number of sources other than meat, but again, most are not aware of that fact. Indeed, here is evidence of just how indoctrinated we may have become. The American Beef Council argues that you're not a man if you don't eat beef. We grew up expecting hot dogs and hamburgers as treats at the park or the ball game. Many I have spoken to have asked simple questions that reveal this problem, such as, but then what do I barbecue on the 4th? In other words, our indoctrination regarding just this subject illustrates the extent to which we are influenced. Everything from our recreation to the view we hold of ourselves is shaped by that cultural indoctrination. I would suggest that you take a moment every day to examine your own practices and beliefs and discover just what it is that you know for yourself and separate that from what you have been indoctrinated to accept. Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, this whole area is, you know, really important to me, especially when it comes to enculturation. Um, I've got lots of family and friends who are deeply, deeply religious, you know, they don't eat meat, they don't eat eggs, uh, they have lots of other rules that they follow, um, yet they can laugh at me because I also refuse to eat dairy. But in the Indian culture, milk, a glass of hot milk at night to help you sleep, that's not just the Indian culture, that's everywhere, but it was just a big part of my growing up, you know, you have dairy in this and cream and all of all of that, and it's like, how can you laugh at me? How can you put down my beliefs when I'm only that one tiny step further than you in the rules that you follow when it comes to animals and stuff? Uh, it just, it astounds me, you know? Yeah, it astounds me that the depth of the enculturation that can go on that prevents them from thinking any further. It's not just animals. I chose animals today to um, to illustrate indoctrination because of our guest. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that is a passion of yours. But the indoctrination spreads across almost everything that we we think. It does. Um, we are just predisposed to accept certain things and reject certain other things. And uh, inherent to that is, is our you know, our need to be right. And so we further exacerbate the problem, uh, seeking what, you know, behaviorists refer to as confirmation bias that, oh, yeah, we are right. And um, and that just deepens the indoctrination. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Jay Hall, and we discussed his ideas and book, Is a Young Earth Possible? 
Allen wrote, I didn't hear any hard evidence offered by Hall, and you asked him for it several times. He kept mentioning Aristotle. That's nonsense. Liz wrote, I believe both the Lord created everything and that evolution is more or less correct. Like you said, you can believe both. Moving on, Kyle wrote, Hello, we have purchased some inner talk in the past and love it. Listen to it daily. My wife and I own a chiropractic office and believe it might be nice to play some inner talk affirmation music over our speakers throughout the day. We spend eight plus hours a day here anyway, so we might as well be benefiting from what we're listening to. Well, that's a great idea, Kyle. And we have many professionals who do exactly that. Leela wrote, thank you for your wonderful recordings you've made available for us. I've been listening to Serenity, which has helped me a lot, helping my mind still and calm. Yeah, we can all use still and calm in this day and age. <laughs> you take that for sure, Rev. Absolutely. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But we do love your feedback, so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show, Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion with Ingrid Newkirk. Now Ingrid has been with us before, but for those of you unfamiliar with her, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Ingrid Newkirk is the founder and president of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, the largest animal rights organization in the world, with more than 6.5 million members and supporters worldwide. She is the author of more than a dozen books that have been translated into several languages, including her latest, Animal Kind, the subject of today's show. She's been featured for her work on behalf of animals in The New Yorker, Time Magazine, People Magazine, Forbes, The Financial Times, and numerous other publications. And she's appeared on TV shows and podcasts all over the world, including Real Time with Bill Maher, The Rich Roll Podcast, and Here's the Thing with Alex Baldwin. She is the subject of a BBC special and an HBO documentary, I am an animal. All right, on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Ms. Ingrid Newkirk. Thank you, Eldon. Thanks very much for having me back. No, that's a pleasure. Uh, and and uh, I guess, you know, you know that my wife and I are both vegans. And, well, I'm mostly vegan. Sometimes I cheat. I have to admit that. I mean, sometimes I have an egg. So I'm a bad boy, but she is strictly vegan. She won't eat a cupcake or a brownie out of a brownie mix. <laughs> I mean, I love it. As you know, there are three things on this show, Ingrid, that we like to know. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, when and why did you decide to spend your life championing animals? Oh, Elton, who knows? I mean, you know, some people are drawn to art or music, or cleaning up rivers, or being sportscasters, and I was just always, from childhood, drawn to animals. I grew up with a dog called Shawnee. He was there before I arrived, and he and I were like brother and sister, went everywhere together, both got car sick at the same time, much to my mother's chagrin, and um, I just, uh, we understood each other. If I was sad or he was sad, we knew. 
Uh, we just shared a lot of fun and games and sympathy with each other. So later on in life, I had a series of, I suppose, incidents that opened my eyes to how other animals were treated. You know, I was a typical child rescuing baby birds who fell from the nest or that kind of thing, and I thought cruelty to animals was appalling. But back then, very few people connected the dots. Uh, Lavinda was talking about, you know, religious reasons to be uh, vegan or vegetarian. Uh, our family was not deeply religious. There weren't any admonitions not to eat or wear animals. We thought we were kind to animals, but I hadn't until later on when I did. I hadn't seen behind the scenes of how animals get to the plate, how they become coats and shoes, or what happens to them in the laboratory or in the circus. And in a series of incidents, I did see all those things. And as you were talking about with indoctrination, I realized a lot of my thoughts about animals were based on just how I grew up and just what I had heard and what we were expected to to do and not expected to do. And so I sat down in front of facts like a little child, as they say, and I thought, do I really think this? Wait a minute. And it changed my life, and I thought, well, if I grew up caring about animals and I thought I was the kind of person who was an animal lover, if you will, and I didn't know all these things or think about all these things, maybe I should form a group for other people just like me, and that's how it happened. It's a, it's a warming story. I, uh, I relate to what you're talking about, but you, you've become a, a very controversial person. And when we announced that uh, you were going to be to the show, um, I received a number of questions. And so before we get to your book, I, I've got some tough ones for you, Ingrid, that are out there. I'd like to see them just dismissed. Uh, and at the same time, some of them are fair. Let's take this one, for example. Using animals for medical research, as you know, is extremely controversial. That said, COVID-19 right now has many experimenting with animals uh, in hopes of developing a vaccine or or an effective treatment uh, protocol. Animal research has led to some breakthrough treatments, at least according to the Foundation of Biomedical Research, who claim that research in cows helped create the world's first vaccine, which in turn helped end smallpox. Now, studies with monkeys, dogs, and mice led to polio vaccine. Drugs used to combat cancer, HIV, AIDS, Alzheimer's, hepatitis, and malaria, they insist would not have been possible without research with primates. So anyone that goes to their page sees it right away. They're they're justifying animal research. Now, we all want a cure for COVID-19. So what say you about this? (laughs) Well, first, that FBR, Foundation for Biomedical Research, is a trade group. And so people should know that. They're like the Cigarette Manufacturers Association. So they defend the people who make decapitators, uh, stainless steel cages that animals are in for their whole life, basically only able to turn around in. And they fight any legislation, not animal rights legislation, but things from the Humane Society to have two more inches of space 
or to have a solid platform for an animal to sit on so they're not on wire slats their whole life. They fight it all. Um, so that's who they are. And I think it's very worthwhile to, if you have the time, to examine their claims because they can't hold up. They're rubbish. Um, we have used billions of animals in every kind of experiment under the sun. And there is no question that I am sure in some cases we learned something that was useful. The problem is, as we've pointed out and we've, we've our scientists, we have 21 scientists on staff and about 110 uh, other specialists in medical fields and research. As they point out, you know, what you did in the past is no justification for what you do now. We have technology. We have whole human DNA on the Internet. We have organs, human organs, on a chip. I mean, technology is wonderful for research. We don't need the patter of little feet in the laboratory. And what has happened with COVID-19 has been a breakthrough, not to find a vaccine yet, but because we are able to use data, high-speed high computers programmed with human data, not mice data or rhesus monkey data, but human data, as with HIV AIDS, we can get to conclusions quicker that are relevant. And what you have seen in the press, perhaps, is that the government has said they will not do the old-fashioned way of testing on animals before they get to testing in vitro. They will skip the animal test, which would have wasted two, four, six more years uh, because they know now, and they over and over again, it doesn't work. 95% of drugs that come on the market that are tested on animals cause side effects as serious as death, anaphylactic shock and death in the human animal. So now we have new testing methods, and that trade group is determined to prey upon people who grew up thinking, oh, well, you know, we've got to use animals because uh, it's just a few of them, and they're used in life-saving research, and they're treated kindly. I've been in the labs. I've inspected the labs. There are videos galore on our site. It's not a few animals. They're used for every fool thing that you could imagine. Scared at the moment by the National Institutes of Health researchers with rubber spiders and rubber snakes to see how they react to the tune of 13 million tax dollars. So look closely. They're all uncomfortable. They're all unnecessary. They're all in pain. And we have better, far, far better ways of testing uh, medicines now than we've ever had before. The trade group should just disappear. Okay, so I, I've got a little bit of a question as a follow-up on that. If I'm understanding you correctly, you may have been suggesting that in the past, animal research was the right thing to do because we didn't have this technology. And I'm thinking very specifically about the NIH, which claims that without animal treatment, medical advances and treatments for everything. They list penicillin, tuberculosis, macular degeneration, asthma, meningitis, kidney transplants, breast cancer, insulin, etc. Nah. would not have been possible without animal testing. That's listed on NIH's page on the internet. 
Oh, yeah, Eldon. <laughs> no question. Um, we've used animals. I mean, if whatever it's... <laughs> we have thrown away so much money. We're going to find some things if we use enough animals. But really, what has happened is, even in the past, is when we've thought we've discovered something, we've tried it in human beings, often we find that doesn't work. Um, when we have, for example, had major breakthroughs, development of antibiotics. All those kinds of things have come from sanitation. They've come from studying human behavior. They've come from epidemiology. But yeah, what we have done, that 95% figure is, is really frightening that 95% of things tested on animals don't work in humans. So say that says, okay, 5% do. You're squandering all these animal lives and all this money so that you can get that 5% when we have all these better ways of doing it. In the past, we didn't know them probably, but NIH is in hot water with Congress. They're in hot water with almost everybody, especially scientists who work in in vitro methods and other methods that are more promising and with more breakthroughs for human beings because they do squander millions upon millions of our taxpayer dollars every year because it's an old boy network. They've always done things one way. And if, the, if they hadn't been stopped, they would still be trying out every COVID possibility with first rats, mice, hamsters, then moving on to beagles, then moving on eventually to fellow primates, monkeys, and so on. But the government has said, no, NIH, you can't do that. Just skip that. You're wasting time and money. Yeah, I, I, I've got a follow-up. I've got, I, I have to ask you, Ingrid. Sure. I know that you work with these people. You know these people, both sides of the equation, those that uh, you know, are animal supporters and those that would use them in a lab like what you're describing, and et cetera. I have never been able to, you know wrap my arms, if you will, around the kind of person or how they would insulate when they carry out some of these experiments where they actually see animals in pain or where they they sever a limb or or do things of that nature. What's what kind of individual is it that you your takeaway is that is able to insulate themselves, be a human being when they're out of the lab, and at the same time treat an animal that way when they're in the lab? Beats me, Eldon. I have a, one theory that doesn't come from me. It comes from science. But it is, it's heartbreaking to see some of our videos where it's not only that some of these experiments, experimenters don't really see a living being in front of them or don't really relate to the pain they're causing them, or the fear. Fear is, is very big in the lab. They say when the doorknob turns on the lab door, an animal's pulse rate quickens, their heartbeat speeds up. You know, all these things, their adrenaline goes through their body. They know something bad is going to happen because they've been captured and put into this place, and these humans are coming in to do something. But it's not just that they don't see that. We have hours and hours of tape of experimenters laughing at the pain and suffering and making remarks, some of which I can't even repeat on the air. 
of mocking the animals, holding them up when they're brain damaged and waving their hands at the camera like, ha ha, see me. And people saying from the lab in tapes that we have, let's hope the people for the ethical treatment of animals don't get hold of this. And we did. So it's not only that, but there is a theory. And that is, in the human brain, there are mirror neurons. And these are the neurons that allow you to relate to others, to put yourself in their place. doesn't matter what species they are or gender, but to be able to feel, to empathize. And some people have very well-developed mirror neurons. They will cry if they see you know, something horrible happening to an animal or human being. And others have less well-developed, and some have undeveloped mirror neurons. And those are psychopaths who actually enjoy watching somebody suffer. And so perhaps people who can work in slaughterhouses, although sometimes those are people who really can't get any other job, but people who work in places where animals suffer, and certainly experimenters, well-educated people, doesn't, doesn't depend on education, may be suffering from underdeveloped or undeveloped mirror neurons, some of them. I'm familiar with that theory. I know there's a lot of debunking about it, but this I also know. Uh, one of the early markers um, our behavioral scientists have identified uh, particularly the the FBI, having to do with serial killers is animal abuse. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's a pattern that is very disturbing. Ingrid, we have a break. When we come back, we'll dig into your book. We're speaking with Ingrid Newkirk about her work and book, Animal Kind. It is a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. You can learn more about our guest and her books by visiting PETA, P-E-T-A, PETA, Okay, do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Ingrid Nurkirk about her work and book, Animal Kind. You can learn more about our guest and her books by visiting PETA.org. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. For music, psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So now, your chosen music, Ingrid, Breathless by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. You're going to have to explain that one to me. Tell us why why it's important to you and how it informs us about who you are. Well, I think it's a very cute song, and it's also poignant. It comes as part of a video which shows, in a sort of animated way, the wonder of nature from butterflies to birds to squirrels and rabbits to deer and so on. And the uh, guiding words are, I am breathless without you. And I think it is that it's true that nature is a great orchestra of life 
and every single part of it is uh, every single animal and human being plays an instrument in that orchestra of life. So Nick Cave sings about the wonder of nature, and I, I just enjoy that so much. It's so much better than somebody who trophy hunts or something going out and blasting nature to smithereens. <laughs> Okay. No, I, I agree with you. That's really not. Yeah. Okay. I'm not laughing at what you said. I'm laughing with you. All right. Anyway, yeah. you're on record comparing factory farming to the Holocaust and SeaWorld to slavery. Indeed, you launched a legal case naming five orcas as plaintiffs and sued SeaWorld for enslavement. Flesh that story out for us. Let us know what happened, would you? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, under the Constitution, the 13th Amendment, it's the institution of slavery that is illegal. It doesn't say who the slave has to be to make it illegal. It's the whole institution of slavery. So our lawyers thought, why don't we talk about these wonderful, intelligent, social living beings who are held captive, have been taken from the great oceans, from their families and their pods and their lives, and plonked down in these small cement, basically cells, these pools, at places like SeaWorld and other marine amusement parks. Also, that someone can make some money having people come in and watch these animals be dominated because they have to perform silly tricks in order to get fed. And we thought, well, if that isn't slavery, what is? You know, we all recognize that no one should ever have kept a human being. But gradually, people are coming to the conclusion that there's something wrong with taking an elephant or a, an, an, another wild animal, an orca in this case, out of their habitat and using them for our own frivolous reasons. So the lawyers brought a 13th Amendment landmark lawsuit. Of course, we lost. I mean, one of the things that you hear in most movements is first you, you lose and you lose and you lose as you try to make new, break new legal ground, and one day you win. So we were very pleased to be able to have legal scholars all over the United States and in other countries debate what this means. But of course, as with other things where you're trying to break through, and, and this, this week, I think, is the 53rd anniversary of the success in the Supreme Court of Loving versus Virginia that allowed interracial marriages to go ahead. And our general counsel bought that case 53 years ago. So you know it takes a long time to break old things apart and have us have a more enlightened view. And that was just the first volley. It, you know, one of the criticisms that I read regarding that lawsuit said, well, the next thing is uh, they're going to go after dog shows. Um, you know, the AKC has performance, sure. obedience trials, and dogs run under things and over things and walk on two legs and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Tell me, in your mind, how is it different, the orcas versus the dogs? Well, I certainly have a lot of bones to pick, no pun intended, with the AKC, <laughs> uh, because we've got a homeless dogs crisis in this country. 
and we've got all these dogs sitting in animal shelters waiting for homes. The AKC is busy promoting, breeding more and more dogs and getting people to fancy a particular concocted breed. And they're all concocted. You know, dogs were once wild and they were mixed and then they got bred to have squashed faces or long legs or, or be a particular color or perform a particular function. But that aside, um, the orcas were taken from their natural home. The dogs probably grew up in somebody's home. The orcas were out with their family, and they have huge pods, and they swim over 100 miles a day, and they use their sonar. They can smell the oceans. They can see what's going on in the deep. That is their life. So they've been deprived of their life. I mean, we've domesticated dogs for a long time, much to their detriment sometimes, because we wouldn't have this homeless crisis if we were responsible about it. Um, but for the orcas, I mean, they're not bred in, in, in that way. They're, they're taken from the wild. And if they are bred in captivity, which is now illegal in California for SeaWorld to do, they were artificially inseminated. And I won't describe on the air what they do to the males and how they get the semen. And then that they put, stick it up inside the female orcas. And when the babies are born, Often the females don't know what to do with them. They don't know what they are because there are no mothers or aunties or grandmothers around to help them. And in those small ponds, in those small pools of cement, the babies often die. Sad, tragic, but there is quite a difference. You can't, I mean, that's apples and oranges in my view by way of comparison. Although I'm reminded of a real cute cartoon that I saw not long ago where a wild wolf is looking down on some humans with a fire and he thinks to himself, well, maybe they'll feed me. What's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Fast forward, you know, 10,000 years, and here's this miniaturized schnauzer that's just, you know, it was very funny. Okay. Let's talk a minute about, you know, the thing that made PETA probably famous. And that was your calendar girls' ads, videos, uh, and, and, and appearances, and the whole motto, we'd rather go naked than wear furs. You just recently decided, okay, that's the end of that campaign. So my question is, did it produce for you, it was very controversial at the time, but did it produce for you what you were looking for out of it? Oh, yes, it, very much, because, you know, I mean... When somebody like Kim Basinger poses for I'd rather go naked than wear for everybody has to have a look. And through the years, um, that woke a lot of people up because they'd come to the website or they'd pick up the brochure, and then they wouldn't just see that. They would get all the facts about steel traps or how the animals go crazy in those uh, small cages on the fur farms and how they're killed and and they would turn away from fur because I used to have fur and I hadn't a clue and I wish there had been somebody who had got my attention and said hang on do you know how the animals came to be part of your coat so yes it was very successful but now we have come to a point where Prada, Gucci, um, Galliano, Donatella Versace Calvin Klein, all these people, they don't use it or 
sell it anymore. And young people don't want it. And we have decided, you know, you just don't need that anymore. So we've moved on. All right. Let's let's talk about your book, uh, Animal Kind. Why did you write it? And, and what, it, what do you expect your readers to, to take away from it? Well, Elvin, um, if I may, the, let me give the subtitle of it, because that does help. It, it's Animal Please. Kind. Yeah, thank you. Remarkable Discoveries About Animals. That's the first part of the book. Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and the, rem, the Revolutionary Ways We Can Be Kind to Them. And that's the second part of the book. So... I wrote the book because there is so much more awareness these days of who animals are. You know, you were talking in the very beginning about all this indoctrination and conditioning, and I understand that completely because I grew up, part of my childhood was spent in India, and we had ivory ornaments, and we had a tiger skin rug, and we had an umbrella um, foot uh, umbrella stand, I mean, the elephant's foot umbrella stand in the hallway, all these things. And I didn't think twice of it, didn't think twice about my wild cat fur hat. But now we're in a different time, and kids are growing up. They don't want to go and see an elephant stand on his head in the circus wearing a silly you know, ornament. They know about animals in the wild, and they respect them. And there's so many things on the Internet. We didn't have the Internet then. And so you see all these funny videos of dogs. You know, you go out and the dog pushes the chair against the kitchen counter and jumps up, opens the cupboard, takes out a snack, gets down again and pushes the chair back. And I thought, I have hundreds of actually phenomenal facts about animals that would knock people's socks off about how um, primates hide a piece of metal and so that when the keeper has gone home, they can work on the lock on the door. And sometimes they succeed. How dolphins, for example, give their children a, a, a name, a whistle name when they're born and they keep that name for life. And if a dolphin hasn't seen another dolphin for up to 20 years, then they hear that whistle and they know exactly who it is. All sorts of interesting things, from snails to elephants to dogs to orangutans, you name it. And I thought, let me put some of the jaw-dropping things about this in the first part of the book. And then when you have read those and you think, wow, animals are talented, they communicate in these extraordinary ways, they have emotions like us, they feel love and grief and pain and joy, then the second part of the book will be, well, you've got all these habits from your youth or from your indoctrination. Maybe there are ones that you would like to change now because they involve, maybe inadvertently you didn't know, they involve harming and killing animals. So let's see what's available to us in this day and age, and you can make kind choices. All right. One of the things I enjoyed most about your book was um, the comparison to how um, how much alike animals are to humans. Share a story or two. Flesh that out for our audience, would you? Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, one of the, the little things I can offer right off is um, during the fires in California, those massive fires, and we were all glued to TV watching them. Same in Australia. But in California... 
they were loading horses onto trailers in the road because beside the road was a massive horse farm and behind the horse farm the flames were coming you could see them going right up into the sky uh, bright flames and then smoke shrouded the whole horse farm and then there was a fence the road and the trailers loading the horses this stallion was about to get on the trailer and you could see his ears suddenly went up he heard something nobody else had caught on to, and he broke away. And much to everybody's uh, worry, he ran straight back to the farm, went down the fence line, found the lane in the smoke, and disappeared back into the farm. And everybody was thinking, no, 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 no. Well, he heard a mare whinny, and he then reappeared. He had found the mare and her foal, and he led them back through the lane, through the gate, back onto the road to have them loaded on the trailer. And I thought, you know, if this is California, it could be Hollywood. If that was The Rock or some other movie star fella, he would just, everybody would be applauding and carrying, but it's a horse. But that horse did a heroic thing, and he risked his own life, and he went back and he found them, and he brought them to safety. So altruism is how many animals are like us. Even a bat, if they've got a sick neighbor bat, that bat will go out and get food and come back and feed their friend. So there's a lot of that, but also they're so like us, or even better sometimes than us, when it comes to fidelity, protectiveness, love. Because human beings have about, maybe more now, a 45% divorce rate. And yet, a goose or a swan or a pigeon, a little pigeon, will find their love. And what I say is they marry their high school sweetheart and they're still with them at the end of their lives. And if a goose is shot, they, the other partner, the partner may come down to the earth with them and sit beside them, even at great risk to themselves. And pigeon parents, you could learn so much from them because they take turns looking after the baby and they make milk, each of them, the male and the female. Each pigeon makes milk in their crop and takes turns feeding their baby. So if you see a pigeon with their beak down another pigeon's beak, could be that they're kissing because they're very sensuous. They do love each other and protect each other, or it could be they're feeding their child. So there are countless examples of love, protection, looking after their children, their babies. A fish will open her mouth and let the babies swim in and close her mouth so that they're not seen if a predator goes by. Um, I've got stories about sheep who can recognize faces from photographs of other sheep or of human beings. And they panic. Uh, we talked earlier about how lo- animals in laboratories will, will get very scared if the doorknob turns. Well, if you have sheep in an experiment, in a room by themselves, just one sheep, it's shown if you tack a photograph of another sheep on the wall, their heart rate goes down, they calm down. So they're just like us. They need comforting, you know? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I... You you work with animals, I understand that, but you also love nature. And 
when you look into nature, well, there's a tradition, I'm, I'm digressing, there's a tradition in India that's known as Ahimsa, respect for all life. Indeed, there are Hinayana Buddhists uh, won't eat after dark, afraid they'll swallow an insect. So, But when you, you look into nature, you, you know, you see that ants bury their young, or bury their dead, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, how far do you think we should go with uh, compassion for for life, all life? I think we should go as far as we can bring ourselves to go. And the thing is, to get started, you know, somebody may say, oh, well, you know, such as I'm not sure insects feel, or I'm not sure this... But you do know that a cow feels, a chicken feels, a turkey feels, a duck feels. You know those things, dogs, cats, horses. You know birds feel. All these things that you know, then don't hurt them if you don't have to. Find the compassionate choice of something else you can do to entertain yourself, to test a chemical, to eat, to put on your back, whatever it is. So I believe the big challenge is, come on, let's get started. Let's explore this. Who knows where it will go? I'm not afraid of a slippery slope. I think that slippery slope in social justice issues is a great thing. Keep going. You never know where you'll end up, but start. And so for me, it's the beginning. Recognize that you're not alone in being smart. Other animals have intelligence. Animals don't even have GPS or a map or anyone to ask, yet they can circumnavigate the whole globe. They can fly, birds can fly 5,000 miles without any devices whatsoever and land on the same nest, on the same roof, on the same house, in the same village every single year because they, they, they read the Earth's magnetic field. They can detect low-frequency radio waves. They can see the position of the stars, which is how squirrels bury nuts, actually. And it's (laughs) all these things. Be in awe and just see how far you can go. Don't worry where it will lead you. You speak about animals reading nature. Any any rancher knows that your animals are going to know when the storm's coming along before you do, or the weatherman, for that matter, I think. All right. Maybe not the weatherman today, but but you're absolutely right. I'm here's the big question, I guess. The bottom line: you're, you're looking back now. Pete is coming on its 40th anniversary. Forty years you've been doing this. Forty years ago, you started and you had certain goals. Where are you with respect to those goals? What do you think your greatest achievement has been? Well, Eldon, there are so many, and we've got a victories section of org where you can, I think, be impressed by how, and it's not, you know, we're just not a machine. We're a collection of a lot of people who care, and it's because of them writing and calling and emailing and telling companies what they want and what they will buy and won't buy that things have changed. But when we began, we were protesting Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, for example, and the elephants being chained up behind the big top. And it was the greatest show on earth. We said it was the cruelest show on earth. But it's gone. 
Uh, there are laws now in so many states that ban the bullhook, that fireplace-like poker thing, that they mm-hmm. jab the elephants behind the knees and behind the ears with to make them behave. Um, that's, it's all going. There are almost no shows anymore that use elephants. And we've got places like TripAdvisor and Airbnb to not advertise elephant rides in foreign countries when you go on vacation because those elephants are mostly lame, some of them are blind, all sorts of things like that. We stopped all the car crash tests on animals in the whole world. So when you see that test dummy on television advertising the mannequin, advertising the safety of a car, it's because we stopped them smashing baboons and pigs into walls, every single car company. And fur, as we mentioned, you know, is dead. It's, it's basically gone. We're now moved on to um, getting faux leather and what we don't need any animal-based clothing. And retailers are beginning to pick up on that. We have this thing called... Ingrid, yeah? we are out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. I could talk to you for forever. I, I do want to tell everybody out there, do go to PETA.org. Take a look at what this organization has been able to manage uh, in their 40 years. And, and I, you have my personal um, gratitude, Ingrid, and uh, at the same time, my respect. I, I thank you for your book and for your work and for your willingness to share with us today. Thank We've come so to much. the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.